This is AutoLine This Week, the show that gets you inside the global automotive industry. Underwriting for the production of AutoLine This Week has been provided by RSM. For challenges specific to your business by working with trusted advisors who help turn obstacles into opportunities. Experience the power of being understood. RSM, audit, tax, and consulting for the middle market. And now, here's your host, John McElroy. I want to thank you all for joining us on AutoLine this week. Today, we're going to be talking about the supplier industry. You know, you all know about General Motors or Toyota or Mercedes-Benz, but did you know that automotive suppliers actually supply 80% of the content that goes into a car? They're also really the major source of innovation that goes on in the industry. The automakers all want to claim credit for the innovation. Most of it actually comes out of the supplier industry. So let's talk about that industry today. And boy, have I got three experts on the panel, starting with... Julie Freem, she's the president and CEO of the Original Equipment Supplier Association, the OESA, mm -hmm. which is a supplier group. We also have Sig Huber. He's the senior managing director at Conway McKenzie with a tremendous amount of automotive background to him. And Mark Barrett is a principal with Plant Moran, also with a lot of automotive experience behind him. So thanks, all three of you, for joining us here on today's show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Here's what I see going as I look out on the supplier industry. In the U.S., certainly, we've had five years in a row where sales hit 17 million units, each and every one of those years. We've never seen that in the history of the industry. Mm -hmm. I mean, things are phenomenal. This is the golden age. Everybody should be popping champagne corks. And yet there's this feeling of unease. There's this uncertainty that's going on. Julie, why is it? Why, what do your members tell you about what they see this year and going out for the next few? Well, thank you, John. And when we look at the industry, we see a tremendous amount of change going on. And so it's that uncertainty about what's changing and how it's changing that concerns suppliers. So while they are very excited, in most cases, about the volume and, and what it's done for them over the last five years, they still are concerned about what the future holds. Yeah, Sig, what do you see? Yeah, we've seen the same types of things. The um, the labor market has also been a real challenge for suppliers on a go-forward basis. Uh, meaning what? Meaning their ability to find workers uh, to uh, make all the parts that they need to make for their customers. And so that continues to be a source of uncertainty, as does trade. Mm -hmm. And Mark, what do you say? Well, I think the devil's in the detail, and to a, to a large degree. I think the, the headline numbers are fantastic. Everybody's obviously optimistic there and for the future going forward. But there are certainly those, those uh, gray clouds on the horizon with, as Julie says, as much disruption in the industry in terms of technology uh, and capital investment that's required to support that. That really causes a lot of confusion and uncertainty for suppliers, and that is not a good thing for, uh, for the supply base. So it's yep. what, the, all this investment that has to go into electrification, into right. mobility, into potentially even autonomous cars, that, that's what it is? Well, it is certainly that. It's developing the technology, so both the R&D that needs to go into it as well as the <coughs> capital investment. At the same time, you have to keep, I'll say, the railroad running. You still need to manufacture and 
uh, do the work that your company has traditionally done. So that creates, in essence, for most companies, two businesses that they're running at the same time, when previously they really hadn't done that. Hmm. Yeah, I think there's also uncertainty around the speed of the transformation. Mm -hmm. For example, here in the U.S., maybe autonomous and electrification is going to happen at a much slower pace than it will in Europe or in Asia where it's being mandated by regulations. Mm -hmm. I think that, that creates additional uncertainty and additional challenges. Yeah, that's a great point. Well. You know, uh, you got to look at this industry on a global basis, not just what's happening in the U.S. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The other, other thing that's interesting is you look at the shift between uh, cars and trucks and SUVs. And so you have some suppliers that are going to win with that and some suppliers that are going to lose with that. And you have a lot of launches coming up. This year, uh, it's forecasted to be significantly higher than average mm -hmm. launch volume. So you have more launches which create more degrees of difficulty for the supply base to be able to keep up. Mm -hmm. And Mark, same thing, you, you see this, these new areas that uh, automakers and suppliers both have got to get into creating this uncertainty. It, it, that, that's exactly right. It's really about, we're, we're designing new technology, but for what? And in, in, in lots of cases, the, the, the output and what will what those technologies will be used for is still pretty uncertain as we move forward into, you know, when, when are testing of autonomous vehicles really going to change from testing through to commercial realization. And the timeline for that is so uncertain that it's hard for suppliers to get, to get a plan around that um, without significant thought processes. Mm -hmm. Sig, you told me uh, a while back uh, that when you were still at FCA, you saw a significant increase in financially stressed suppliers. Give us a little bit of detail on it. Yeah, and we're still seeing that today. The, um, the, the pace with which suppliers are turning red from a financial standpoint has been increasing over the past 18 months. And we've already talked today a little bit about some of the industry challenges <clears throat> they're facing with respect to labor and uh, wage rates and uh, launches and uh, things like that that are creating um, a lot of financial stresses. Uh, among the supply base. So when you say financially stressed, I mean, is it you know, a significant part of the supply base, a majority, or, or what? No, but it's just an increasing trend, and the speed with which yeah. suppliers are turning red has been in continuing to increase. Mm -hmm. So it's a trend that uh, suppliers need to continue to keep their eye on because their suppliers are feeling the stress, and the OEMs need to keep an eye on it as well. Yeah. I think part of that came from um, this shift that you mentioned from sedans, cars, mm -hmm. to trucks. So if you were on the sedan programs, the car programs, your volumes went down. Even though we held the 17 million kind of number as we look forward, that, that was really impactful to some mm -hmm. of the suppliers. So they um, were stuck with some platforms that didn't uh, materialize the volumes right. they planned for. So that was a big issue for many suppliers. Yep. Mm -hmm. I agree. Then you look at the end of last year, you had the GM strike, you had some of the, the Nissan platforms where volumes really didn't materialize as suppliers indicated some of the, the, the volume in China. So it's, uh, I think, a, a macro trend, but with some event-driven uh, reasons for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think most people in the industry don't realize, Sig, how assiduously the OEMs track the financial performance right. of their suppliers. Um, so talk a little bit about that, and when you say financially stressed, what are the things that automakers are looking for? Uh, primarily liquidity and being able to continue the, the steady supply of production. If you're in a purchasing organization or a supply chain organization at an OEM or at a tier one supplier, your main job is to secure safe supply of parts. 
And so anything that would happen from a liquidity standpoint that would impact the supplier's ability to deliver parts on time it, in high quality is going to be a problem. And so those are the things that the OEMs are looking for. They're looking for the quality of parts. They're looking for uh, the liquidity of the supply base just to make sure that they can have continuous supply. And when you say liquidity, you're looking at how much cash do they have on hand, essentially, right? Well, the question is, can their cash flow cover the expenses that they have? And as long as they can pay their bills on time, they're going to be able to most likely make parts. But when you start to get to a point where uh, you have issues making uh, payments to your vendors and you're stretching your vendors, or you have uh, uh, dates coming up with your banks on loans that need to be refinanced. Those are the kinds of things that can start to uh, interject problems for the supply base. Mm -hmm. Isn't it part of uh, the OEM's purchasing policies that can drive that too, in the sense that uh, Suppliers make big investments to be able to build these things for the car companies, but they don't get paid until the car companies actually start making them, which in many cases can be a long way down the road. Mm -hmm. Isn't this an issue that the suppliers face? It, it certainly is. We've, we track uh, and survey the industry, the working relationships between OEMs and suppliers. And one of the things we found, which has been relatively flat at the top line, the headline level, for the last few years, has been price pressure. It's always been in existence. We haven't really seen it, apart from one, one outlier OEM, really tick up in the last uh, three to two years. Mm -hmm. But as you look at the next level down of, of the detail and you think about the different level of programs and where programs are, we do start to see a lot of price pressure from the OEMs on, on the suppliers as, as we go through different you know, cost downs as the programs mature. So that is, you really have to look at the next level of detail to get to some of the right answers. Mm -hmm. if you're I, think, I think that's one of the challenges that uh, the suppliers have now is where do they put that investment? Mm -hmm. There's so many new uh, battery electric programs yeah. or hybrid programs being launched. I mean, there's a five-fold increase as we look at the yeah. next three to five right. years. So where do they place their bets? What platforms? We just got done talking about the platforms that they didn't get enough volume on. Right. Look at the battery electric platforms that they're going to have to place their bets on. And then also look at the new OEs that have entered the marketplace right. and the bets that they're placing there. So when you start to talk about cash flow and where's the cash, the, all of those items sort of uh, add up to being, for some suppliers, a big challenge. Mm -hmm. Where do you all see the, the industry, uh, supplier industry going right now? For years, we've talked about consolidation, where the big ones gobble up the little ones and more consolidation so they get more scale, they can be more efficient and the like. But at the same time now, we're seeing a lot of suppliers spin off their high-tech operations. And so, if anything, I think we might even have more suppliers right now than, than we ever have. Sig, what's your thoughts on this? Well, I think most of the OEMs right now are trying to rationalize their supply base. I think most have come to real realization that if you have too many suppliers, it's more difficult to manage. So I think we're going to see commonization of platforms among OEMs, more different vehicles on on uh, the same platform on a global basis, and uh, using that to help drive consolidation to the extent that they can. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when we talk with a lot of suppliers, the, the, one of the overwhelming uh, themes that we hear is we want to double in size by 2025, by 2030, whatever the time frame is. And that has to be by organic growth, and it has to be by acquisition. And so if you think about you know, your comment about consolidation, uh, I think that's 
that is the, still a, a significant trend. We're seeing still significant volume in the in the M and A market and consolidation. So we expect that to, to continue, certainly for the next uh, four to five years. And yet, Julie, we see all kinds of new supplier startups with all this new technology. Oh my gosh, I just uh, was at CES early in the year and uh, there was a lot of companies, automotive companies, I'd never even heard of before. Absolutely. And then you've got some old traditional ones, Delphi, which spun off Aptiv, right. or uh, you know, Vianeer is uh, one of the ones that came out of right. Autoleave, and we're seeing more and more of this. So which way do you think it's going to go? What I see happening is, as these smaller, innovative companies come on the scene, they start to look at what's it really take to make 100,000 or 200,000 right. or half a million. Right. And suddenly, the reality of the production line and delivering that kind of volume to the industry hits home. And that's when they uh, look out and say, boy, is there someone that can help us do this? So. It may be an acquisition where a company, a larger company, buys that technology and integrates it into their own. It can be um, unique partnerships. We are seeing different kinds of partnerships evolve, uh, particularly as we look at some of the new technologies for battery electric vehicles or automated vehicles. It's just a different, again, world that we've talked about. It's changing, and so that dynamic is something that the suppliers are adjusting to. Mm -hmm. So you yep. seem to be saying, the three of you, we're going to see more consolidation and we're going to see more new suppliers come in and more spin-offs, although some of them might get sucked into uh, mm -hmm. this consolidation that's yep. going on. Right. Yep. Let's uh, uh, talk about uh, how do you handle your investments if you make internal combustion engine componentry? Uh, you know... It's not going to go away, the internal combustion engine, anytime soon, but mm -hmm. I, there's not going to be any growth in it, is there? If you were a supplier or advising a supplier, what kind of, and they make internal combustion engine componentry, what would you advise them? Well, it's a very good question because it's a complicated roadmap that they need to try to piece together because they have to keep producing the parts that they're currently making. Those parts are not going to go away for a long time, especially in North America. But when it comes to some of the other regions of the world, like China or Europe, they're going to need to adapt. And they're going to need to see what, what does their new world look like and start to forge down that path at the same time that they continue on their profitable existing business. Mm -hmm. Mark, do you tell them they better learn about electrification or would a strategy be, okay, maybe there's no growth, but we can buy up some other comp competitors, consolidate, and make a tidy business out of it. So we talk a lot about runway. So what is the, the runway left for a particular product set, in this case, the internal combustion engine? So we then think about, you know, what is the we forecast forward for the program? How long are the programs in place? What is the next replacement schedule? And then think about what does that mean for your product planning perspective and your capital investment in new technologies or new capabilities, frankly. Um, from an ICE perspective, we still see we still see a long runway for the ICE mm -hmm. right through to early 30s, 35, really still being the predominant type of of engine. You know, and of course, hybrids also have an ICE, so there's that there's still that component. And I think we'll start to see investment in ICEs in terms of efficiencies. We already saw that with uh, with with the Infinity uh, technology la last year, but we'll start to see 
an increase in the in the cost of an ICE, which really then also starts to balance down the the, the electric electrification as that becomes cheaper and internal combustion engines potentially become more expensive. It kind of drives that that switch in technologies as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What, what do you see at OESA, Julie? How do you think your members are going to go when it comes to this balance between ICE and electric? Well, I think as you described, it's, it's very much a, a trade-off as they look at partnerships and investment. Um, they recognize that there is a lot of runway left. Um, many of them plan uh, to continue to make ICE parts for the foreseeable future. Um, I don't see them saying, you know, by 2030 we're out of the business or by some point in time we're out of the business. Um, not at all. I, I see right. them continuing to move forward. I think part of the challenge in, in the BEV world is what can you do with the, ta the talent, the technologies, the capital investment that you have today as a supplier mm -hmm. that will allow you to also move toward a BEV product or a BEV product line. Mm -hmm. um, can you support both, um, and, and how do you do that? And that's some of the trickiness in the product planning that suppliers are faced with right now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they're all doing this, though, right? I mm -hmm. mean, I, I cannot believe how many suppliers I've, I've got press releases from, and they've developed uh, an electric vehicle powertrain. Maybe not the battery, but the, the electric motor, the, the gear reduction unit, as right. they no longer call it a transmission, the inverter. Right. Uh, it, it just seems, uh, Mark, that so many of them are trying to jump into the new opportunities. And as we all know, in the automotive industry, ultimately, all new technology gets whittled down to about five global suppliers caught right. in the cost race to the bottom. <laughs> it's, it's interesting. We've probably been working with suppliers for 10 years on electrification strategies and what it means for their current product uh, uh, portfolios and future product portfolios. And there isn't a supplier we talk to that, that doesn't have this conversation active right now. Now, there are suppliers that are not necessarily uh, acting upon those conversations, but certainly it, it is impacting every single major uh, tier one through tier N supplier. It's, it, it's the dominant conversation, along with autonomous, obviously. So how, how does an automaker handle that? There, there's so many suppliers all trying to do the right thing. Clearly, the, uh, the OEM has got to buy this stuff, but strategically, how do you place your bets with which supplier? Well, what we've seen, and Julie referred to this just a couple minutes ago, is an increase in the number of consortiums that have been mm -hmm. developing. And so you have consortiums existing of OEMs, Tier 1s, Tier 2s, and even uh, tiers below that. And the consortiums, when they're working together, can generate uh, volume potential that makes it very interesting for their technology to become the driving factor of the standard for whatever it is that they're making. Mm -hmm. And then how do you make sure you've got the right partners in your consortium? It's an age-old question. <laughs> I, 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 there's a lot of people who spent a lot of time studying these things, and uh, at the OEM level, the Tier 1 level, they're investing a lot of money and a lot of time into making those selections. I would also say, in some cases, they're hedging their bets. They're making multiple investments and, and looking at multiple technologies in order to make sure that they're ready to go as they look forward. Yeah. yeah. And I think these, these consortiums are not just traditional auto suppliers. They're obviously reaching out mm -hmm. into the technology space that we've not seen before. And so that's bringing a fresh infused, in, influx of both uh, innovation and, and intellectual property and capital. Yeah, and, and more competition. And more competition. <laughs>
let's switch gears a little bit here and, and talk about uh, the USMCA, the, the U.S. Mexican Canadian trade pact that replaces NAFTA. I, I got to believe that OESA. This has been a huge topic of conversation. And what do your members think about it, Julie? Well, certainly. Um, we are grateful that, at least it, it appears, that USMCA is going to go forward um, and that it'll eventually become uh, the policy on record. Um, the most important part is for the suppliers to have certainty, to understand how they need to act and react in the marketplace. And this gives them that. As the regulations that are tied to this are better defined and rolled out, we'll spend a lot of time educating our membership on what those are and uh, the particulars regarding them. But most importantly, as I said earlier, is that certainty um, that, yes, indeed, this is um, the regulation we're going to operate under. Yeah. yeah, I think the industry has proven itself time and time again to be very resilient. Mm -hmm. And I think the industry will be just fine as long as it knows what the rules are. Yeah. And, and, right. and then they can make investments accordingly and yeah. decisions accordingly. Yeah. And though. This USMCA was deliberately written to try to drive more investment back into the United States. Uh, what do you tell suppliers of what they should be looking out for? Well, I think it's the, 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 the red is not fully baked yet, and I think we need to be careful that we don't jump to conclusions and start you know, providing that type of advice until we see the final, final set of uh, rules and regulations, and then it will become more clear and uh, people will be able to start to uh, find their path. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mark, your thoughts on that? I was uh, in a, a conference in Mexico in the fall, and uh, it was, the, as the emerging framework was was being discussed, it was rece being received really well there in, in Mexico. That it was that again the certainty that, um, mm -hmm. that the supply base is really looking for, and you know the the suppliers down there were were. Uh, happy about the certainty from the Mexican side and also the U.S. side. I, I, I can understand why they would love the certainty because we've been operating in limbo here right. and nobody, in, in fact, it, it, you could argue it hurt the U.S. economy because right. companies right. have been holding back an investment until they've right. had yeah. the certainty. Nonetheless, having said that, it boosts the amount of U.S. content that cars have got to have and componentry within cars. It, there's a stipulation in there that a given percentage of a car has got to be made with labor that's paid more than $16 an hour, mm -hmm. which is well above wage rates right. in Mexico. Why were the Mexicans so happy with this? This would seem to be taking business away from them. Well, that was probably the one area of concern, is, is how is that going to be implemented and how we're going to really monitor that and, and track it. So that was, that was probably the area that, that had, frankly, the most conversation uh, last fall. Mm -hmm. But they love the certainty. But they love the certainty. Yeah. And that remains a challenge. Um, we don't know yet exactly how that will right. be regulated. Right. And so that uh, $16 an hour number, depending on if it's heavy truck or light vehicles, it's mm -hmm. 40 or, uh, 45 or 40%. Those numbers, you know, we'll see how that's tracked. We'll get a better understanding. We'll, as suppliers, we'll work with the OEs and better understand what they're looking for and how we... Um, as suppliers, if we need to support that or if that's completely done at the OE level, um, it all depends on how the regulations uh, are written in particular. Right. So. I, I think we know most of it. I, isn't part of the question, Sig, what kind of side agreements there may have been? I mean, it seems to me, and I'm not an expert in this, but based on what I've read in other shows that we've done, you know, most of the text of the agreement is done. But because Democrats in Congress have raised a couple of issues, 
they're not going to go back. The U.S., Canada, and Mexico are not going to renegotiate these things. So isn't it some of the side deals that might be of concern? Well, I, I think it's just uh, what I mentioned earlier, which is how is it going to be administered? Mm -hmm. So while we know what some of the major terms are, we don't know how it's going to be administered. And that, I think, is what we need to wait and see. And then people will be able to make decisions accordingly. All right. Yeah. And so is that what you're telling your, your members? Just sit tight for the time being? Actually, yes. I mean, we're saying, you know, as soon as we know, as soon as we have that documentation and have an opportunity to review it, we will do our best to educate you ab about it. Um, and that's really um, where the whole industry is at right now. We're grateful for the, the um, agreement and want to move forward. And now we just need to see the details behind that so we can. And we can't talk about trade agreements without at least touching on China. Mm -hmm. There's been even more uncertainty in that regard, Mark. Uh, any prognostications or thoughts on U.S.-China trade deal? We're still we're still waiting for. I think even as as close as today, there's still um, conversations coming out of the White House and the administration. We obviously still want that same level of certainty for for China. Uh, I think there's a massive pent-up demand that ultimately could be unleashed. So I think there's there's nothing but upside for the supply base. Um, it is still complicated about how to operate in China, which is obviously something that the, the, this agreement will not uh, resolve. Mm -hmm. uh, there's still that complexity of OEMs in, in the supply in the China market. There's still that complexity of operating a business in the China market. So there, the, the, once the agreement is set, all those issues still have to be resolved. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah. Your, your thoughts on yeah, any China deal? I agree completely. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And Julie, well, this has got to be a big topic amongst your members, too. Certainly. I mean, the, the China tariffs have been a, a significant topic for us over the last year and a half, if you will. Um, and how to operate within that, understanding how to ask for relief in some cases, how to move forward, what's happening with the percentages we now understand that percentages are going to shift again, you know, all of that creates that uncertainty that right. creates challenges for the suppliers. So the, the sooner we can nail that down, the better off the overall industry is, not right. just suppliers, but the overall industry right. is. It's interesting, you know, I started this conversation off by saying we should be popping champagne corks in the industry. It's not happening. There's a lot of uncertainty. But you've all painted a picture that if a few things come together, the, uh, this industry could be ready to rock. We're still very optimistic. Yeah. I think it, a lot of it also depends on the underlying economy. If you go back, say, three or four months from now, a lot of the experts were talking about 2020 being a tough year for the economy and for the stock market, and now you're not really hearing that so much. Right. So mm -hmm. if that trend continues to hold and we get certainty around some of these major foundational in, in, uh, issues for the industry, I, I think it could be a good year. With that, we're going to wrap it up. Julie Freem from OESA, Sig Huber from Conway McKenzie, Mark Barrett from Plant Moran, thank you for your insights. Thank you. Underwriting for the production of Autoline this week has been provided by RSM. challenges specific to your business by working with trusted advisors who help turn obstacles into opportunities. Experience the power of being understood. RSM, audit, tax and consulting for the middle market.